1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Are you not mere human beings? After all, what is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. Matthew 5, 21 through 37. You have heard it said that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Matt and Michelle, for reading our New Testament scriptures. And thank you to Caroline and Grace and Peter earlier for reading our Old Testament readings. Um, there are some good things happening these days here at church, and some are weightier than others, and some we are already talking about, like the Church Center app, which you all now have installed on your phones. And perhaps a smartphone app doesn't rank very high on the scale of weightiness, but as our new hub for communication, 
It is an important and good thing to talk about. And unlike Facebook, our soon-to-be former communication hub, when you open up the Church Center app, you won't see any cheesy religious memes or political ramblings of your 619 closest friends, which is wonderful. Um, other good things happening in our midst include the, 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 the great youth winter retreat that CJ talked about last week with 23 youth attending, the launch of a couple of new small groups that are starting up this week, a good thing that you may not know is that 2022 was yet another strong financial year. A member of our distinguished board will be giving us all an update on this sometime in the next few weeks, but until that day, you may be interested in knowing that we grew both in total offerings given, but also in total household giving units participating from the year 2021 to 2022. But another good thing that I suspect most of you don't know involves this lovely woman, Brianna Clover. But first, some backstory. Way back on March 24th, 2015, CJ and I met with Pastor Vincent Terry and Dr. Talika McCoy at Mount Peace Baptist Church to explore the possibility of us, a predominantly white church, entering into a relationship with them, a predominantly black church, and to begin worshiping together whenever a month had a fifth Sunday. And so began our intentional journey into conversations about race and justice and equity. And the first time that we worshiped with Mount Peace Baptist in their space, members from our worship teams were invited to uh, lead one song. And we led the song that Jessica just led for us this morning, I See Heaven. And the opening lyric of that song is why I chose it. I see heaven invading this space. It was such a perfect lyric for that moment as our two congregations worshiped together in the same space. And heaven was indeed invading that space. Nearly eight years later, the conversation about race and justice and equity continues because despite how much we would love to check a box and say, job well done, this is an ongoing work that is never really finished. And in light of this ongoing work, our board introduced CJ and me to Brianna Clover last fall, and she is lovely and smart and insightful. And she works as a consultant to churches and nonprofits and businesses alike, and we've hired her to work with us to speak into our ongoing journey and conversations about race and justice and equity, identifying strengths and weaknesses, places where we can grow, things we need to learn, and spaces where we are doing well. And this ranks uh, slightly above a smartphone app on the scale of weighty things and good things happening at Ecclesia. And I thought it would be something you all may want to know. A few months from now, to wrap up Brianna's time working with us on a fifth Sunday, April 30th, she's going to be the one here uh, at the preaching table teaching. And I suspect it's going to be a wonderful, amazing day. CJ and I met with Brianna this past Wednesday over Zoom. We meet every other week. And for me, among the more memorable parts of our conversation uh, was a reminder of how much we need other voices. One of the reasons that we started Ecclesia with a co-pastor model was because we recognize that no single person can give full voice to the gospel. But of course, the voices of two six-foot-three white dudes also falls a little short. Just a skosh. And so CJ and I, we need to read other voices and listen to other voices, but also invite other voices here to share the pulpit in this space. To illustrate this need for more voices, 
A few years back, while preparing a sermon in Genesis chapter 16, I read Dr. Wilda Gaffney's reflection on the story of Abram, Sarai, and Hagar. And the story begins like this. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave, and perhaps I can build a family through her. From Dr. Gaffney's social location, informed by her story and her grandparents' story, in her reading, she immediately saw the forced surrogacy of a dark-skinned foreign Egyptian woman named Hagar, an unflattering Hebrew name that means flight or forsaken. And quoting Dr. Gaffney, her female body was colonized to gestate the hope of Sarai and Abram. And she goes on to write how in spite of Abram and Sarai's violence against Hagar, God in his mercy still kept his promise to them. And Sarai became pregnant. And observing this, she writes, God's fidelity to Sarai exceeds Sarai's fidelity to Hagar. And Dr. Gaffney was able to open up this story in ways that I was not capable of seeing on my own. And this is why we do church humbly and why we need the full body of Christ. From uh, the verse from two weeks ago, Micah 6.8 says, what does the Lord require of you? To do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. And part of walking humbly for us as a church means recognizing we don't know all of the things and we never will. But fortunately, knowing all of the things is not on the list of things that the Lord requires of us. Our gospel reading today that Matt read for us is this 17-verse section from the Sermon on the Mount. And we've actually preached series on this sermon before called You Have Heard It Said. And I'm going to do a more overview approach rather than dive into specific verses. But this sermon was preached by a marginalized Jewish rabbi who was eventually killed by the Roman state in collusion with some of his own religious, Jewish religious leaders on charges of sedition and blasphemy. And this sermon was preached by Jesus to his people, to the house of Israel, to a marginalized religious minority in the Roman-occupied territory of Judea, who, and this marginalized religious minority had suffered the loss of status, loss of freedom, and loss of autonomy. With the exception of often being the only Canadian in the room, I've never been part of a minor minority. But even with, at that, my Canadian citizenship has never led to me being marginalized. Only jokes about politeness, questions about universal health care, and mockery about how we say out and about, and our correct pronunciation of capillaries. You all say capillaries, which sounds so weird. But I have never suffered the loss of status, or freedom, or autonomy, which means it is almost impossible for me to read the Sermon on the Mount with its original intent and significance and power. And so I listened to another voice this week, someone who studied and wrote about the Sermon on the Mount who was part of a marginalized minority and who did live 
under the loss of status and freedom and autonomy. If you've never read Howard Thurman's well-known book, Jesus and the Disinherited, I highly recommend it. It was written in 1949, five years before the civil rights movement began and nearly 15 years before the Civil Rights Act passed. And it was written to give his black brothers and sisters, the disinherited of the world, a moral and ethical compass to help them reimagine what opposition to injustice could look like, encouraging a change from within to empower them to survive in the face of oppression. And this is precisely what the Sermon on the Mount is, and Howard Thurman draws heavily upon it in his book. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' manifesto to his disinherited people, his Jewish brothers and sisters, to show them a way to survive in the face of oppression and injustice that reimagines what opposition looks like, a new way that refuses to engage in any of the power and violence and domination games that led to their oppression in the first place. Because Easter arrives relatively early this year, there are actually two fewer Sundays before Transfiguration Sunday and the beginning of Lent. And these are Sundays when more of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount would have been read and studied. But rather than wait three full years for the lectionary cycle to circle back around for a longer pre-Lent season, I'm going to read just a little bit further into our Sermon on the Mount text. Matthew 5, verses 38 to 48. You have heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If a soldier forces you to go with him one mile, then go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you, only, if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Several months ago, I'm not exactly sure how long ago, but I confessed during the sermon that my all-time favorite movie, at least since 2009, has been James Cameron's Avatar. And then prior to 2009, it was the original Matrix, which came out 10 years before in 1999. And prior to that, my favorite movie was Dumb and Dumber, which was released in 1994. And I'm not certain what my list of favorite movies says about me, but I'm certain it's not good. But shortly after my Avatar movie confession, I had coffee with someone who shall remain nameless, who told me quite bluntly how deeply disappointed she was in my choice. She thought the movie was terrible and filled only with tired, worn-out tropes of villains and heroes and an overused storyline that should have long been laid to rest. And I think I may have paid for her coffee, which I briefly regretted in that moment. But the truth is, I'm pretty sure she's right. 
The, the very fact that Dumb and Dumber was once my favorite movie is ample evidence to suggest that I leave higher reasoning and thinking, critical thinking, at the door when watching movies. But for all three of these movies, all of which I don't even know how many times I've seen them, I suspect I would be your least favorite person to watch those movies with. Why? Because I will quote almost every Lloyd Christmas and Harry Dunn line, and during The Matrix, I will say out loud at least a dozen times, this scene is amazing, like when Neo first discovers his powers and fights Agent Smith in the subway. And I will cry at the destruction of Home Tree in Avatar, guaranteed. And by the way, if you don't know what any of these movie references are, congratulations. You have better choice in movies than I do. But I am over-familiar with these movies. And interestingly, where over-familiarity with these three movies seems to have resulted in a deeper knowing of their themes and plot twists and depth, or lack thereof, an inverse thing has happened with my familiarity with the Sermon on the Mount. As a lifetime Christian who spent five years in college-level Bible education training and who vocationally has only worked in churches, I am really familiar with this text. But my familiarity has not deepened my knowing. Rather, I think it has erased all of its original power and intent and significance. Listen to what Howard Thurman writes, reflecting on Jesus' words to love your enemy. The religion of Jesus says to the disinherited, love your enemy. Take the initiative in seeking ways by which you can have the experience of a common sharing of mutual worth and value. It may be hazardous, but you must do it. For the Negro, it means that he must see the individual white man in the context of a common humanity. The fact that a particular individual is white and therefore may be regarded in some overall sense as the racial enemy must be faced and opportunity must be prov provided, found, or created for freeing such an individual from his white necessity. From this point on, the relationship becomes like any other primary one. Once an attack is made on the enemy status and the individual has emerged, the underprivileged man must himself be status-free. For love is possible only between two freed spirits. That's powerful. This may be the truest reflection of the original intent and significance of Jesus' words that I have ever come across. Perhaps it requires a marginalized voice, like Howard Thurman's, speaking to a marginalized people to capture that original power. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was declaring to his Jewish brothers and sisters that life under oppression does not excuse anyone from pursuing a path of courageous love and creative integrity. And this is precisely the bold ask that Thurman was making of his brothers and sisters to pursue a path of courageous love and creative integrity. And I find it utterly breathtaking to imagine him speaking those words into the American climate of 1949. The courage it must have took to speak and to hear those words 
I will never understand. Thurman imagines what preaching the Sermon on the Mount must have cost Jesus. It wasn't just the Roman authorities who struggled with Jesus, threatened by the large crowds that he attracted, threatened by his critique of Roman values like wealth and power, speaking cryptic messages that seemed to criticize taxes and how they should be rendered to Caesar, but also to God, calling out religious hypocrisy, which included the Roman-appointed religious leaders. Jesus had many gifts, but one of them was making lots of people angry. His calls to love your enemies, it angered the zealots and their followers who wanted to violently overthrow militarily Rome. His challenges to the Roman values of power and wealth angered the Sadducees and the Essenes and their followers who thought sitting down and shutting up was the best way to safeguard the Jewish faith. His countrymen may have all been united in their opposition to Rome, but they all had different ideas on what that opposition should look like, and none of them aligned well with the radical path of love described by Jesus. Today's portion of the Sermon on the Mount, it seems to start from the inside and move outward. It starts with anger towards a brother or sister, but then it moves outward to enemies and Roman soldiers. But starting with that anger between a brother and a sister, anger within a family or a faith community or a cultural group, let's assume that the crowds listening to Jesus, for the most part, understood the need to love and forgive the regular hurts of life that happen in, in their houses and families and friendships. And let's look at some of the more challenging calls to love and resist anger that must have existed between Jesus' Jewish countrymen. Let's start with tax collectors. These were Jewish men conscripted by Rome to collect taxes from Israel. Taxes which, of course, further secured their Jewish oppression. About tax collectors, Thurman writes this. They were Israelites who understood the psychology of the people and therefore were always able to function with the kind of spiritual ruthlessness that would have been impossible for those who did not know his people, his, the people intimately. They were despised. They were outcasts because from the inside they had unlocked the door to the enemy. And relating these words about tax collectors to some among his own day, Thurman writes this, all underprivileged people have to deal with this kind of enemy. There are always those who seem to be willing to put their so special knowledge at the disposal of the dominant group to facilitate the tightening of the chains. And even toward this enemy on the inside, Thurman makes an impassioned plea to love, arguing that only love can break through with such a person. Only love, a deep respect and reverence for personhood, holds the power to unlock a path to change. Along with the tax collectors who lived quite prosperously when compared with the rest of Israel, the Sadducees also lived among this upper class of the Jewish people. 
The Sadducees were a wealthy, influential class of Jewish priests, and Rome appointed them as the official Jewish religious leaders because they were more cooperative and controllable than the more politically and socially engaged Pharisees. And an agreement was struck between Rome and the Sadducees. If the Sadducees protected Rome by discouraging and silencing revolutionaries and radicals, Rome would protect them. Yes, the Sadducees loved Israel, but they seemed to love their security even more. Dr. King, in his letter from a Birmingham jail, writes of some of his brothers and sisters who, because of a degree of academic and economic security, and because in some ways they profit by segregation, have become insensitive to the problems of the masses. These were successful business owners or professionals who feared economic retaliation, the loss of business or clients if they were to get involved in the civil rights movement. And again, Thurman's call to love is utterly unflinching. And here, Jesus moves from enemies on the inside to enemies on the outside. And I already read Thurman's radical understanding of Jesus' words to love these enemies, where he says, love your enemy, take the initiative in seeking ways by which you can have the experience of a common sharing of mutual worth and value. It may be hazardous, but you must do it. When I think about all of this, and when I think about the people that I struggle most to love, and almost none of you are among that number, and then, when I think of the outrageously radical call to love in the Sermon on the Mount in its original context, a context which, thanks to Thurman's book, I feel only this week was restored to me, to its original power and significance, when I think about all of that, I then think to myself, dang, I have got it easy. And I don't know your full story, but I suspect for most of us, we would have to say the same. By God's grace, may we never suffer the injustices Rome doled out upon the Jewish people. And by God's grace, may none of us suffer the depths of injustices that Howard Thurman saw and lived through on a daily basis. But we have all suffered rejection, and betrayal. And we will all suffer it again. Your spouse will hurt you. A friend will betray you. A Christian brother or sister will wound you. It makes me think a little of the low anthropology wedding vows that I mentioned a few weeks back, where the officiant says to the groom, Simon, do you admit that you are a failed, broken human being, not in every way, but in some ways so serious that you will at points be a grave burden to Emily? That, my friends, is the greatest wedding question ever. But f your friends, fellow Christians, neighbors, the people who live under your roof will be a grave burden to you at some point. Can I get a witness? But in these moments, even though our hearts may want to throw punches and go to war, the call to love remains. 
I am not nearly as smart or articulate as Howard Thurman, so I'm going to conclude and wrap up and leave you with three short, simple quotes that I think may help us better heed this call to love. The way that Howard Thurman describes the enemies from within for both Israel and in Jesus' day and those parallel examples from his own day, I can't even begin to imagine how strong the temptation to hate must have been. But in these moments of temptation, we need to remember hatred is destructive to hated and hater alike. Make no mistake, the choice to hate will destroy you and with efficiency. Second quote, love of the enemy means that a fundamental attack must first be made on the enemy status. I hope that that resonates with you as much as it did with me when I read it this week. A fundamental attack on enemy status must be made. When things go off the rails with a friend or at home, and if, if that person, whoever it is, slips into the classification of enemy, they need to first re-emerge as person. We need to remember who they are. And again, it makes me think of the low anthropology wedding liturgy that I mentioned a few weeks back where the couple exchanged these ritual gifts of charity, photographs of one another from childhood, this reminder of personhood, a token that helps them hold the other with patience and tolerance and warmth. Whoever it is for you that currently wears the label enemy, Love requires that we attack that label, that we lift them out from that status, that they may reemerge as person once more. And final thought, even though I believe that our call to love today is easier than Jesus' call to his Jewish brothers and sisters, it is still hard. If the starting point for removing enemy status from someone is found in restoring their personhood and in remembering who they are, the strength for us to do this is found in the same place, in remembering who we are. Howard Thurman writes about his source for resisting hatred and loving his enemies. He writes about it this way, the awareness of being a child of God tends to stabilize the ego and results in a new courage, fearlessness, and power. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, writes it this way, Behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called the sons and daughters of God, because that is what we are. To love is hard, but God is love, which makes us sons and daughters of love, which means we were literally born for this. You are a child of God, and you were made to take up this challenge. Let's pray together. Spirit of God, 
Life is so beautiful and life is so hard. And both of those truths are gifts. Love is sometimes beautiful and sometimes love is frightful work. Jesus, if your brothers and sisters under oppression were not absolved from pursuing a path of courageous love and creative integrity, then neither are we. Buoyed by our status as sons and daughters of love, help us bravely attack, launch an attack on enemy status wherever we have placed it. Amen.